I'm curious how many of us have already watched, participation please, raise your hand, have already watched one Christmas movie this season? We wouldn't get that many hands if I asked how many people are excited about Christmas. This is amazing. All right. How many of you have already watched three Christmas movies? Like, already in that far? Uh, let's, let's up it up some. Uh, uh, five? Five Christmas movies easily, some of you? All right. We, we've got a Christmas season upon us, and evidently we are into it. This is a good thing. There's something comforting about watching and re-watching and re-watching that, you know, favorite one, two, 17 Christmas movies. You know the script by heart. It won't be new, especially if it's on Hallmark, right? But it reminds you of some of your favorite things. My go-to is the movie White Christmas. It's my favorite. Anyone else in the room? Anybody? A staple of the season. Uh, I... For this Christmas Eve, I'm considering asking uh, Pastor Scott to join me in reprising the roles of Bing Crosby and Danny Kay, and that sisters, that sisters. Are we? Uh, I hate to put you on the spot, Scott, but uh, you know, however it goes, we, I hope you'll be with us this Christmas Eve. And uh, who knows? You never know what might happen. Um, as compelling as these seasonal stories may be, can I encourage us as a church? Today, as we get started, let's make sure we're making Christmas about Jesus, right? Let's make sure we make Christmas about Jesus. I'm encouraged by the families, the many stories I'm hearing about your Advent devotional journeys and the conversations you're having as a family or the intentional practices and traditions you're implementing in every season. And if, I, if you need a place to start, I, I have a couple of suggestions. First, let's make sure... And we don't give gifts based on whether someone's naughty or nice. We don't talk about gifts that way, right? That's not how God gave to us. He gave graciously. So let's, let's give graciously. But then also, I encourage you, this coming Sunday on Christmas Day, before, well, maybe after the cinnamon rolls, before you get into the heart of the morning anyway, take the time. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 with anyone who's with you or all by yourself and read Luke chapter 2, maybe the most clear and detailed Christmas story we have in one place in the Bible. In fact, I, I want you to join me there this morning because yet again on a Christmas message, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. And speaking of movies, as you open your Bibles there... Like many films, this account of the birth of Jesus, this moment in history is, is like in media res, that into the middle of things. You know many movies or stories start out that way. The very first scene, the very first chapter, you're already in the middle of something and you feel like, I'm missing context. I don't know why they're running. I don't know why they're crying. I don't know what just happened, but I'm in the middle of it already. And that's what the Christmas story is like if we just open up to it here in Luke 2 today. We're fooled by many times, we're fooled at many times by the fact that a baby is being born into thinking that this is the beginning. Really, this is the beginning of the end. Christ's birth is the beginning of the end. How so? Let's approach this 
true historical account. Let me be clear about this. It's a true historical account, but let's approach it as if it were just another Christmas film for just a second, for just a moment. Luke chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 6, and it reads like this. While they were there, this is Mary and Joseph, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. All right, I'm approaching this like a movie, right? And so if I'm approaching it like a movie, all of a sudden, right away, I'm looking at the script, and I'm going, I don't want to micromanage, but I have some questions for the writers here, right? I have some questions for the writers. I mean, my wife has even more questions, because even if we didn't already know this account was written by a guy named Luke, we would know it was written by a dude in her mind, because where are the details, right? Like, the labor experience, the progression, the weight, the length, the hair color, the eye color. Where are the details? Somebody didn't know what kind of story they were supposed to be writing, evidently. But there's a scene change coming, so let's give a pass on this first moment. Maybe the script writers are going to improve on their game. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. All right. Now i got to stop. Who is writing this script? Shepherds? This is the wrong cast list. There are no A-list celebrities in this moment. This is all wrong. Shepherds, they're extras on this set. They're forgettable. They're ordinary. Angels are appearing to them. And God's glory? Well... Don't blame the shepherds for reacting like this, right? They're reacting, I think, true to their historical moment. The, did the writers not do their historical context study here? Shepherds were usually unclean. They were unworthy of being in holy places because of their contact with the flock, with the herds of animals. Of course, when God's glory is suddenly around them, they're going to think, I'm unclean. But for temple worship, I'm unworthy to be in this glory. I know it happens when someone who is unclean and unworthy is in contact with holy. And I'm afraid this is my last night on earth. So they are terrified. But the angel does some quick thinking off script and says, don't be afraid because, well, let's just let them say it. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The angel assures them, no, you don't have to be afraid. This is, this is a good meeting. This is a good meeting. But then I'm kind of confused by the plot lines here. There, there's evidently tension, but I don't know what that tension is. Like, why do they need a Savior? Why do they need peace? What, what is this Messiah? Has he been, like, hinted at so far in this storyline? And then the angel invites the shepherds to be cynical. It's like, I'll give you a way to verify this. You're going to find a baby in baby clothes, naturally, but sleeping in an animal feeding trough. All right. Who is in charge of scene selection and prop management? This is getting sloppy. 
There's not a house in the city that'll take in a baby? This movie's never making it past a limited release. Well, it can't get worse. Let's go to the next cue. Verse 13. Suddenly, there's with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among whom, among with whom he is pleased. Okay, this is something I can get into. We're finally on the right track. An army of angels, glory to God in the highest, maximum glory, all the way to the top, and then all the way down here on earth. What a contrast. Peace. But how's that happening? What's going on? What happens next? Verse 15, the angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Which if I'm thinking, I'm guessing Luke wrote out the intentions of their heart and head as they recounted it to him. If I'm a shepherd and I was just afraid for my life and fell over as of dead and angels appeared to me and then said, go there, probably other words were used. But they want to go. They say, let's see what's happening. In verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And this is the moment, as it were, in a movie, right? Record scratch. Freeze frame. Baby Jesus in a manger. And then you hear narrating the Son of God's voice come on. You're probably wondering how I got here. Well... Excludes the cinema cliche. How is a baby literally just born a savior? How is he going to bring glory to God to the highest degree? How is he going to accomplish peace on earth when all the rest of us have tried our best? Let's rewind the tape. Let's leave the movie analogies behind. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Would you turn there with me to make sense of all of what we've just read, of all of the wonder of the Christmas story. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hundreds of years before it happens, God speaks through Isaiah and foretells that Messiah will come. And his name will be, among other names, the Prince of Peace. This morning we're looking at the reality that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. This is a name. It's a title. It's, it's probably 
more profound than what we might want to say when we say someone has a nickname. But even our shallow sense of that term, nicknames, they often come from something about someone, right? You know somebody in your life that you call a name because they give you that vibe or because they had that funny moment or they just kind of came into this. This is who they are. I think of a story one of our kids team members told me just last month. They watch our kids faithfully uh, on Thursday mornings while many women are here studying God's word. And one of this crew told me one day, you know, I got to tell you, do you know what we call your son in nursery? And as a parent, <laughs> these are the moments you're afraid of. <laughs> We're dealing with Titus here. And he says, you know what we call Titus? And I'm like, backing up slowly. Getting ready to type my resignation letter, like, what <laughs> What do you call my son Titus? He's like, we call him the dumper. Because he comes in the classroom and just dumps everything. And I'm like, oh, that checks out. Yeah, that's, that's Titus, the dumper. Because of what he's known for, he gets a name. Well, for Jesus, he's so integral in establishing peace and being the ruler that brings and keeps peace that he exemplifies and he is defined by peace. And we talked about peace last weekend when we were in our Upper Room series, which we're heads up taking a break on here, really for the next month and a week or so. And in John 14, we saw that Jesus says, peace I give you. Peace I give you. Not as the world gives it to you, do I give you peace. And we, we saw that the word for peace is both familiar and, and misunderstood. We, we usually think about it as the absence of trouble, like some neutral territory. We're like, we're not in trouble, so we're at peace. We're like in this neutral zone. That's usually the way we think about peace. But in the Bible, especially in this Hebrew culture where, where these words are coming from, where this conversation is coming from, it carries a greater meaning. It's a word shalom, and shalom means wholeness, completeness. It's moving from a neutral zone into a positive zone of everything is exactly as it should be. When the angels announced the arrival of the incarnate Son of God, they announced that that means peace on earth, shalom on earth earth and they're reacting to a reality that in God's storyline and the existence of everything shalom peace has been a major dominant theme right up there with the glory of God in all things is shalom Jesus is the principal mean of that shalom he's the principal means of that peace we want to ask today, if Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, if he is so defined by peace, that's a name for him. How is he our peace? How is Jesus the Prince of Peace? So I want to zoom out this morning and look at a meta-narrative and just charge recklessly through it and see, I think, at least five ways, five realities about Jesus that give him this significance, being our Peace. The first is this. Jesus has always been shalom. Jesus has always been shalom. As we've been in this Upper Room series in John 13 and 14, we've, we've delved into, we've tripped into, we've drowned in some realities about the Trinity. That the Godhead is three and also one. And that has 
been a profound mystery for the church for generations. And as we look at the way Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we see another Trinitarian theme. We know and we can know that in eternity past, before the creation of anything that was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit had total shalom between them. They were not lacking. They were whole. They were happy. They were complete. They needed nothing. Shalom then begins in the nature and in the character of God. Jesus has always been shalom. He's been whole and he's been holy. Always. This is good and this is revealing news to us. How could we get peace from someone, from some entity, if it didn't have peace in and within itself, right? Like, why do we so often think that we could achieve our own peace when we've never known peace? Why do we think that a new economy or a new career or a new partner or a new identity could ever give us peace when those things have never been peace? If you want peace... Look to the only place that has always been peace. It's always been whole. Look to Jesus. Jesus has always been shalom. That's a first reality that indicates him, him as the ruler, the leader, the prince of peace. But then also, Jesus created the universe in shalom. Jesus created the universe in shalom. Read the creation account. It celebrates balance and wholeness and flourishing, light and dark and land and sea and male and female and all is harmony and all is balance and all is exuberance and all is beauty. Even their nakedness indicates no one had anything to hide here. Complete openness with God, with nature, with one another. Shalom. Peace. Specifically, John tells us that it was Jesus. Jesus was the agent through which the Trinity created everything. In John chapter 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word. Here referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The whole world was utopia, and Jesus made it that way. It was shalom. And this is what was always meant to be. This is what our reality was supposed to look like. This is why our hearts long for peace on earth, why we long for identities that are satisfied, because we don't know shalom, but we know somehow universally across cultures, on our own way and in our own times, we all know. We aren't who we were meant to be. We don't know life as we were meant to know it. Because humanity shattered shalom. Humanity shattered shalom. Into this flourishing wholeness came sin. As Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and immediately they realized they were exposed. Shalom between God and man was broken, and with it, everything else was too. Adam and Eve turned against each other. Nature began to eat itself, and disease entered the picture, and, and then a greater non-shalom was introduced. Death 
Where man's body dies and his soul is separated from it. All shalom is gone. Man to man, man to himself, man to nature, and most importantly, humanity to God. Our story is now marked by violence and injustice and the struggle to survive. And everything has changed and there is no peace. Into this chaos then comes the promise that we read here in Isaiah chapter 9. Out of the darkness, a light. There is one who is coming who will be wonder counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of shalom. We need that leader of peace. Because what we really need is restoration. We need someone who will restore shalom and heal all that has been broken. So forth we see that Jesus has made a way back to shalom. He is the prince of peace because he's always been shalom. He created everything in shalom. And even though we broke it, he has made a way back to it. Predicted here in Isaiah to be the prince of shalom. From the beginning of his life on earth, at his birth, he's hailed as the coming of shalom. The angels sing it to shepherds, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, shalom, among with whom he is pleased. I mean, think about this. The angels existed before the fall. They knew what life had been like. They knew what shalom looked like. No living people on earth even knew what the contrast was. They just ached for it. And so, doesn't it make sense that angels who had seen shalom, when they see God himself born as a man coming to the earth to accomplish restoration, the thing they shout is, glory to God, and you're about to know peace. You've never seen it. We have. We can't believe what's happening here. Peace has returned. The leader of peace has come, and he will restore what's been broken, and he will renew shalom in the world. And scripture tells us, and retells us, and foretells us how he did it, how he did it. First, one of the prophecies later in this same book, through the prophet Isaiah, God speaks. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus, this Messiah, he'll be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. His wounds, his death, become our peace. And then the explanation later in the New Testament, after Jesus has gone to the cross and then gone into heaven in victory, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus reconciles us to God. This is what Pastor Steve talked of last week, that vertical peace we can have with God. He mediates a peace with us himself, for us, with himself. His death in our place for our sins, 
establishes a way for our relationship to be restored to him once and for all. That once again there can be peace between God and man when we repent and believe in him. That's how he's the prince of peace. A child is born. A son is given for peace. He's a peace child. There's a book by that title, The Peace Child, that retells a fascinating story from a missions endeavor in New Guinea back in the early 1960s. It's with the missionaries Don and Carol Richardson. The people groups they were trying to reach were constantly at war with each other, just constantly tribe against tribe. One tribe would do something that upset the other tribe, and they would attack to get vengeance, and then they would attack back to get uh, vengeance again, and and the, the cycle just always continued. And it had been that way as long as any of them knew, so much so that it permeated the culture of the way they did life. They came to value qualities such as treachery and betrayal and deception. These were the values they instilled as their, in their children. These were the values they celebrated in their culture. Kind of sounds a lot like our culture. But when the Richardsons arrived, they had medical supplies, which the tribes also highly valued. And so they brought other advancements as well, which improved their quality of life. But these retribution wars kept happening. The Richardsons began the translation of the Bible into the language of these people, the Sawi people. They tried to communicate this gospel, this gospel of peace. But they came across a major obstacle. It was falling on deaf ears to these people who valued warfare and vengeance and treachery. There were no words in the Sawi language for grace. There weren't words for forgiveness. There weren't words for reconciliation. They had no place in their culture. To illustrate the depth of this, the Richardsons told them the story of Jesus, and the Sawi actually twisted their, their understanding. They considered Judas to be the hero of the story. He was the treacherous one. He was the betrayer, the protagonist. When Jesus died on the cross, man, he was the fool who lost. Judas had one-upped him. That's the way they saw the world. These three villages that they were closest to were at war, and finally the Richardsons decided there was nothing left to do, and they needed to leave. But they saw we had come to value them and the things they brought, and so they wanted them to stay, and they decided that they would stop the war between their tribes if that would make the Richardsons stay. Man, if we could have that kind of gospel presence in the communities and neighborhoods and schools and workplaces we live in. And in order to achieve this peace, they reached back into their own cultural heritage and went through a ceremony. They exchanged, in their own language, what we might translate as a peace child. The peace child was a child of a chief, often an infant child, whom they would give to their enemy and allow their enemy tribe to adopt this child. And the child eliminated the hostilities. It created peace. As long as the child was alive, there would be no warfare between those tribes. They would take the two chiefs into the middle of a circle. They'd have all the 
people on their tribe who was giving this child go down a line. They would touch the child and they hand it over to the opposing chief and the chief would come together. They'd put a bow around each of the chiefs and then they'd cut the bowstring to symbolize the war has been broken because of this peace child being entrusted to another tribe. Watching this play out, of course, the Richardsons suddenly had the object illustration they needed, the tool they needed to communicate what Jesus was doing, what God was doing in the Christmas story, in the gospel story. Jesus was God's peace child. Except while a human was destined to die and warfare was destined to begin again, Jesus provided peace that was still vindicated by his life. He was always Alive. God worked. Christianity was established among the Sawi people. They understood Jesus as their peace child. If you want to look into it more, I encourage you, look at the book. It's called Peace Child. You should check it out, buy it, read it. What an encouragement it could be to you. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. He is our peace child. He has made a way back to shalom with himself. And he's still doing that restoring work. As people every day put their faith and trust in Christ and experience shalom. And then anticipate shalom in its fullness to come someday. And that day is coming. Day is coming. That's the fifth Maybe in final for the morning, reality behind why Jesus is our Prince of Peace. He is bringing eternal shalom. Isaiah 9, 7, just read, hints at that picture. He's bringing eternal shalom of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Micah, another prophet, speaks of this same future through inspiration of the Spirit when he says, He shall stand, Jesus shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They, all of Jesus' people, all of God's people, they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You may not know this, but I can tell you the future. This is our future. Christ is coming again. And our Prince of Peace will be our peace perfectly forever. During his reign in a future new earth and heaven, all injustices will be made right, all violence will end, and none of the things that dominate our news or social media will ever happen again. There'll be no war, no cancer, and no aging, and no aching hearts, and no unfaithful spouses, and no manipulative churches, and no sadness, and no unfulfilled dreams, and nothing of sin, and nothing of incompletion. It will be as it once was, how it ought to have always been, and those who are his by faith will celebrate every day forever the one who made and remade and is peace. That's the future. The Prince of Peace is 
Jesus who came to us as a gift from God, as a son, as a baby. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Shalom has arrived. So what's this mean? Because Jesus is our Prince of Peace, we can be in peace. We can be in peace because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You can be reconciled to God. Repent and believe in Jesus, the peace child. Confess of all your non-shaloms and anti-shaloms, your sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, put into peace with him forever. Jesus is our peace. The question remains, is he yours? And he can be. You can be saved and in peace forever. Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we can be in peace and we can also be at peace. We can be at peace. We can have peace in our lives, in our circumstances, and the stress we have still this week. Isaiah 26, again through Isaiah the prophet. He writes, God speaks that God himself, you, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in God. You know those Christmas movies give us warm fuzzies, reminds us of maybe happier days or favorite desserts, people in a place together, and you wake up the next morning and those, those feelings are gone. But because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, his children can fix their eyes on him. Can trust in him. And every morning they'll be greeted with grace and peace that is more than sufficient for that day and every day after that. Not because you're made strong enough or kept away from disaster, but because the leader of our peace is trustworthy and we can rest in him. Pastor Scott shared with us recently so well the way we can be con content in our tiny little box of life and circumstances, knowing that our mighty Prince of Peace can handle the rest. So I can be at peace in this moment, in this loss, in this life. We can be at peace because Jesus is our Prince of Peace. And because Jesus is our Prince of Peace, we can and we must make peace. And one day Jesus is going to make all things right. But he's called us to start that job too, ahead of time. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus himself saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. This is a family resemblance moment. Daniel and Christina welcomed their son into the world, and we can all take bets on who he looks the most like, right? Usually we say we hope the mom. You're good looking too. <laughs> Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That's what he looks like. His family ought to look like him. 
perhaps this Christmas season, in your household, in your workplace, in your digital space, maybe you're aware the Spirit's leading you to be building and making peace, wholeness and holiness, shalom. Starting with the proclaiming of God's gospel, yes, but extending to care and comfort and limitless directions. Make peace. Because Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Church, Jesus is our peace. Our peace child was born. Christmas in the middle, somewhere, of a far grander story. The best story that's ever existed. And the main character of this script, his name is Peace. The Prince of Peace. Jesus 